From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloranipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling in The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Nicole Ellis. It's Wednesday, February 26th. Today, layoffs at Walmart. The anti-transgender group that calls themselves feminists and how China's ambitions are choking the Mekong River. The company is investing in its employees. What company is doing that? Walmart? Walmart. Yes! So Walmart a couple of years ago began testing this new employment structure at some of its stores. They call it the Great Workplace Program. And essentially, it gets rid of certain mid-level store manager positions like hourly supervisors or assistant store managers and replaces them with fewer positions that have more responsibilities. This is that place where we care for one another, where you can make a difference. The one thing that I kept hearing from employees across the board is that they're terrified that they're going to lose their jobs, lose their insurance. These are jobs that they've perhaps been doing for years already that are just shifting a little bit here and there, but they're having to start from scratch. And a lot of them also said that they feel like they're being pitied against their colleagues because they're all competing for a shrinking number of jobs. At Walmart, we're on a growth trajectory that not too long ago most people wouldn't have predicted. I am Ava Baderai, and I'm the retail reporter for The Washington Post. It sounds like it's something that Walmart is implementing or in the process of implementing now. How are they going to do that? So they started testing this out at about 125 stores last year, and they're really rolling it out in these coming months. By the end of the year, they plan to have the program at 1,100 of their stores, particularly Neighborhood Market, which is like their smaller grocery store, and their sprawling supercenter locations around the country. And that's a pretty significant portion, 1,100 stores out of about 5,300 nationwide. Right. It sounds like a lot. And also, it affects a lot of employees. How do they feel about the Great Workplace Initiative, and is it going to change their lives much? So Walmart, with 1.5 million American employees, is the largest private employer in the country. So just a small change to Walmart's hiring structure can have real ramifications across the economy. It's unclear so far exactly how this great workplace program is going to actually play out. Employees at some of the stores that have already transitioned over are saying that, you know, instead of maybe six positions, they're going down to three or four managers. So we're talking maybe two or three jobs that are being lost in the shuffle. But when you multiply that by 1,100 stores, you can really start to see how much of an impact these job cuts could have. And how will that affect pay if you reduce the number of employees or managers, but increase the amount of work each of them has to do because there are fewer people managing? So Walmart executives are saying that this new structure is an opportunity for people to start making more money than they have been in the past. They pointed to one example of, you know, a supervisor who was perhaps making $13 an hour could now get a new job that pays $18 to $25 an hour. But some employees pointed out that a lot of these new roles still have starting pay rates of $11 an hour, which is Walmart's minimum wage across the board. So this doesn't necessarily mean more pay, even for more work. Has Walmart explained why they're doing this? 
So Walmart has been rethinking the way that it approaches its stores and its distribution centers in recent years. A lot of this has to do with technology. They're implementing all sorts of new robots into their stores. They're bringing in machines that can, you know, scrub the floors and stock shelves, check inventory. And they're saying that as a result, employee roles are shifting. They're seeing new and different ways that um, workers could function inside of their stores. And this is a way to address those issues. So it sounds like the managers will also possibly be taking on more responsibility because if they're not necessarily stocking shelves or involved in the more mundane aspects of the retail industry, they're also taking on a lot more. What are managers saying to employees about these changes? That's been a big sticking point based on the conversations that I've had with employees around the country. They're saying that their managers don't have many answers. This program is still being rolled out. It's still in the early stages. And so they're not getting a lot of answers about exactly how it's going to play out or how their roles might shift as a result. This obviously isn't the first time we've seen a company reorganize and restructure and usually shrink its employee base. But what does it mean when a huge company like Walmart, a a big private employer, starts cutting jobs and reorganizing like this? This shows us that the ways that we're approaching retail are changing. We're seeing more and more people shop online or perhaps, you know, order groceries online and go to the store to pick them up versus actually going in and doing their weekly shopping. And I think all of these shifts, these changes are ways for companies to address some of those issues. Abba Badarai reports on retail for The Post. Back in the 1970s, during the second wave feminism, there began to be a split among some feminists over the transgender community and people who were then referred to as transsexual. In 1973, in Los Angeles, at a lesbian conference, there was a debate about whether a performance should go on by a folk singer, Beth Elliott who today we refer to as transgender. And it created this dispute among feminists who did not want to acknowledge and identify transgender women as women, who argued that transgender women aren't women because, quote, no male can assume female chromosomes and life history experience, and who really pushed this belief that transgender women reinforce outdated gender stereotypes and pose a threat to gender equality. So this idea of defining what it means to be a woman really divided some feminists all the way back in the 70s. But that dispute over what it means to be a woman has survived even today among some strains of feminism and one group in particular called the Women's Liberation Front. I'm Samantha Schmidt and I write about gender and family issues for The Post. What is the Women's Liberation Front? The Women's Liberation Front describes itself as a radical feminist organization committed to the total liberation of women and reproductive sovereignty and abortion rights, but they're increasingly focused on pushing back against transgender rights. And they started getting a lot of attention. If sex is construed to mean gender identity, what that means is that nearly all sex-segregated spaces, colleges, sports, dormitories, and women's rights in general will utterly disappear. Sky is blue. 
human beings can't change sex. Having the law demand a belief in something that's not true creates a lot of problems. But if any man, if any male person can call himself a woman or legally identify as female, then predatory men will do so in order to gain access to women's single-sex spaces. And this puts every woman and girl at risk. Because in their mind, transgender identity does not exist. And they see it as an issue that will erode women's rights and threaten the role of the women's rights movement. I feel like that's not typically something you hear from progressive women's groups. They've been completely shunned by the rest of mainstream feminism. And if you ask a lot of transgender advocates and other feminist groups, they don't even consider Wolf a progressive feminist group. They see that as cover for what is really a conservative right-wing group that is committed to uh, eroding transgender rights. Why have we seen them and groups like them popping up recently? It all began actually under the Obama administration as some of these bathroom bills came about. If you remember that, the Obama administration also provided guidance in a Dear Colleague letter reminding schools that they should be allowing students to use the bathroom of their their gender identity. They were very public in their opposition to the policy. What that guidance effectively would have done is obliterated the regulations that allow for sex-segregated spaces. And this was kind of the first time that Wolf took a stance and publicly uh, submitted a lawsuit against the Obama administration, against the Department of Justice, pushing back against this. We essentially made two arguments. One is that uh, the Obama administration's failure to get any public input into this change constituted a violation of the Administrative Procedures Act. And further, we argued that interpreting the word sex to mean gender identity for Title IX purposes was really, really bad for women and girls in institutions that received federal funding. It also filed an amicus brief to the Supreme Court opposing a case in Virginia about a student's right to use bathrooms that matched his gender identity. And they started appearing on Fox News on shows like The Tucker Carlson Show. Now the left's gender insanity is destroying that. So last week, Rachel McKinnon, a biological male, won the Women's Track Cycling World Championship and set a world record in doing so. Now several current and former women cyclists are coming out to defend their sport from a takeover by men. Karadansky is a board member at Women's Liberation Front, and we're happy to have her back on this show. So, Kara, what is the case they are making that, and that you are making against what just happened? There are many Democrats and people who identify as being on the left who are very angry about the takeover of women's sports. And They started the appearing at Heritage Foundation events. They received a $15,000 grant from the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a very conservative group, uh, to help fund this fight against the Obama administration. And so they've increasingly become aligned with some of these conservative groups that would otherwise not support any of their beliefs when it comes to abortion rights, reproductive sovereignty, and it's given them a very vocal and influential platform. So how does that work if Wolf ultimately supports a lot of traditionally progressive feminist values, um, with the exception of transgender rights, how do they reconcile working with conservative groups that don't agree with them on any other topic? I talked to Kara Dansky, an attorney who serves on the board of Wolf, and she told me, Cross-partisan work, at least in the United States, is not in any way unusual or surprising when different organizations who disagree about many things 
can come together on a particular issue. And so we have never compromised our stance on abortion or reproductive rights generally, and we never would. And in their mind, they don't have a choice. They keep saying that they've been shunned by all progressive groups, that they they would like to do other work as well, but they've been really rejected uh, by this, especially what they see as cancel culture on the progressive left. But then you talk to transgender advocates and they say that this is really the only issue they've focused on, that they don't believe that Wolf even really supports abortion rights or supports these other issues because they haven't taken any direct action on those issues. It's really been all about transgender issues. And so it kind of depends on who you talk to. But uh, when you talk to the leaders of Wolf, they see this as a key issue and one that they've been able to have influence on because of the support of these other allies that are predominantly conservative groups. So they see fighting against transgender rights as more important and a more immediate issue to tackle than, say, other parts of fighting for women's rights. They do say they see it as an emergency, as something that could undermine all of the other work that they want to do for women's rights. For example, they filed an amicus brief in an ongoing Supreme Court case that's one of the biggest of the year that would pertain to workplace protections, sex-based discrimination protections, and whether they apply to transgender people on the basis of gender identity. We're interested in fighting for the rights, privacy, and safety of women and girls. And as everybody knows, women are female and men are male. It's really not complicated. And in their mind, that would be a major threat to sex-based protections for women. Because if you can't define who a woman is, then how will you protect them in the workplace in discrimination cases? This is not a case about gender nonconformity. We totally support protections for people who refuse to conform to sex-based stereotypes, which is what gender is. And if this were a case in which Amy Stevens were challenging his employer's sex-specific dress code, we may have taken a very different position. But that's not what Amy Stevens did in this case. What Amy Stevens did is demand to be recognized as female. And we think that's wrong. I think somebody who put it really well for me was a, a researcher named Heron Greensmith, who has been tracking this group and their influence. And Heron described it as a scarcity mindset, that they, they feel that there's a scarcity of, of rights, of protections for women. If you think that there are finite resources, then you have to draw lines between who deserves access to those resources and therefore who deserves access to health and safety, well-being, a life free from violence, and who doesn't. And so you have to focus on protecting cisgender women even if it means excluding transgender women. And one of the major ways that the evangelical right, the Christian right, and also anti-trans feminists draw those lines is through gender essentialism. There are only men and women, and therefore people outside of those lines either don't deserve access to resources or should adhere to gender essentialism in order to access them. Why have they gained so much steam lately? They really have given conservatives uh, a major advantage in some of these arguments because they're able to point to groups 
to really only Wolf and say, look, there's a progressive group here, lifelong Democrats, they're feminists, and they even believe that this is a real issue and that transgender advancements are a threat. And most recently, they've had a lot of influence on some bills that have been making their way through the states pertaining to medical treatments for transgender youth. At least a dozen states have introduced bills that would, in some cases, criminalize doctors for providing puberty blockers, hormone treatments, and other uh, medical treatments to transgender youth. And For example, in South Dakota, the sponsor of the bill, a conservative lawmaker in South Dakota, actually brought in two representatives from Wolf to testify in support of the bill. And he introduced them as lifelong Democrats. One of them, Karadansky, is even a former ACLU attorney. And he was able to kind of use their voices and their testimony to create that perception of a bipartisan, you know, broader base of support for this bill that would seek to pretty severely restrict access to crucial medical treatments for transgender children. There is a fundamental difference between safety and comfort. And when you look at the rhetoric of Women's Liberation Front, you look at the briefs they've filed with the Supreme Court arguing that cisgender students deserve to not share facilities with trans students. When you look at the arguments that cisgender women should not have to share spaces with trans people in homeless shelters, what you really find is that they are arguing for the comfort of cisgender students. And when you look at the lived experiences of cis and trans students alike, that comfort is often, maybe even always, at the expense of trans students' safety. I think it's though it's important to mention that this is a really fringe small group. It is by no means mainstream. It is volunteer based. There are about 700 members across the country. It's not this like massive uh, segment of the feminist movement. And, you know, there's not like there's this it's not like there's this major divide within feminism. I mean, for the most part, mainstream feminism has tried to take a more intersectional approach and include transgender women. But I think that it's a sign also that it's a strategy. It's a political strategy by some groups to try to work across the aisle to show that this actually is a bipartisan issue. And we've seen this before. It's not the first time that a political party has sort of used a member of a group, in this case, the feminist movement, to point to an issue that they see as you know bipartisan. Uh, for example, in the fight for the Equal Rights Amendment, Uh, Phyllis Schlafly became a huge voice for conservatives as a woman who was against the Equal Rights Amendment, which is seen as something that women would want to get behind. And so it's kind of using somebody within that party or within that segment of the population to kind of bolster your own message. But in that case, you know, Phyllis Schlafly was a, a major conservative voice a leader for the entire conservative movement. She really was never aligned with uh, the feminist progressive left. And in the same way, that's kind of what activists tell me about Wolf, is that they don't see them as as representative of, of feminists at all. So 
Samantha Schmidt writes about gender for The Post. And now, one more thing. We took a trip down the Namu River. It is one of the most important tributaries of the Mekong River, which is the lifeblood of Southeast Asia. Shibani Matani is the Southeast Asia bureau chief for The Post. The reason we went down the Namu River was because we wanted to see the impact of a cascade of seven Chinese dams on the people who live and depend on the river for their livelihood. The dams were proposed about a decade ago, and they're basically nearing completion now, which will basically take up about 90% of the waterway. These ethnic Kamu women live in a village close to the Namu River. They are clearing a channel so that the water can go through from, from the river. And then when the water goes through, they will pan the water so that they can find specks of gold. When all the dams along the river are completed, seven in all, it is unlikely that these women will be able to continue panning for gold, to continue walking on these banks, which will be flooded by a reservoir created by the dam. Damming basically makes the the levels of the river very erratic. So there are times when the river will flood very suddenly um, because the, the, the dam gates are essentially open. And, you know, residents have had to be relocated quite far up, up the riverbanks. And they effectively no longer have access to this waterway. We wanted to track how that changed their lives and how it's changed these very small communities that really never, never knew anything but this way of life. Further downstream, close to the second Namu Dam, we pass a resettlement village where we stop and talk to villagers. They miss the calm flowing waters they once knew. Instead, the waters here are still, lined with dead trees, the only traces that remain of the now flooded villages. The dams have blocked off what would otherwise be an unimpeded, very beautiful, very relaxing journey. People no longer want to do that when you have to, you know, be on a boat for a few hours and then get out and take a dusty, you know, motorcycle ride around a dam, which is very loud and very noisy, and then sort of go back on the river. So what's happened is a lot of the boatmen um, have lost their business. You know, they're sitting there with nothing to do. The hotels are empty um, and they just don't know what comes next. Here at a restaurant at the popular tourist town of Nongkyo, tourists used to pass the town on the journey down the river to Luang Prabang, which they could do uninterrupted. Dozens of boats would leave every morning. The inconvenience has turned off some of the tourists and fewer come now. Most who do come by car, not by boat. So we continued our last part down to Luang Prabang. Luang Prabang, a UNESCO heritage site, has welcomed tourists from all around the world for decades, from backpackers to luxury travelers. But a different kind of traveler will soon be passing through. 
that was taking a Chinese-built high-speed railway between Kunming and Vientiane. And here in Luang Prabang, it is a jarring sight. Columns rise from the mud-brown waters of the Mekong River, towering so high as to compete with the hills and mountains that sandwich the river. If Chinese developers get their wish, the railway will eventually connect to Bangkok and then down the Malay Peninsula and into Singapore. Laos has basically been kind of ground zero of, of China's building. You basically have to go through Laos to get into Southeast Asia for China. I mean, it, it borders Yunnan province and on the other side, Thailand. So people are very anxious about what this means for them. And so the future of Laos, if it is just to become, you know, a client state of China. Shibani Matani is the Southeast Asia bureau chief for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you have questions about the current coronavirus outbreak, we want to hear from you. Record yourself asking your question in a voice memo and email it to postreports at washpost.com. We'll try to answer some of your questions on the show. I'm Nicole Ellis. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.